Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Before we welcome everybody, um, let's enter into the word of prayer before we go into God's word. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that each day is a new day with you, Lord. And that this time that we have dedicated to you, Lord, I pray that you will open our ears, open our eyes, and give our hearts the understanding of who you are, of your majesty, of your glory, of your awesomeness, Lord. Fill us with your reverence, Lord, that we know that we serve the Ancient of Days, the pre-existing one, the God of all creation, and that you have an appointment with us, Lord, and every hour, every day, Lord, lead us upon the path that you would have us walk, Lord, because your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. You show us what we need to know for this day. You guide us and lead us for this day. And Lord, let your bread from heaven nourish us and feed us. We thank you, Father, for who you are. Not who we think you are, but who you really are. Your awesomeness, your grandeur, your power, your splendor. Your glory belongs to you. And in Jesus' name, Lord, we come to you as your sons and your daughters, adopted into your family. We pray that you give us the understanding of who we are in you and our authority in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're part two of, uh, this is the hour of his time. Um, and this series is about the appointed times, the seasons of God's design. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is what Jesus says. He was the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And last week we laid the foundation, and this week's session two, we're going to look at what is a season of time in God's eyes. Because history is his story. What is the measure of a season of time? You know, is it the sand that falls through an hourglass? Is it the seconds that tick on a watch? Let's have a look what the Word of God says. The Word of God is established forever. This is from the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. And every section in this psalm is dedicated to a single letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And Psalm 119 verse 89 to 91 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. And thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. And they continue this day according to thine ordinances. The word faithfulness here means security, 
and stability. The word abideth is to stand, to remain and endure. The Hebrew, like the Greek, is a very precise language. And the way the letters are ordered, the way the, the definitions, the English cannot capture the majesty in some areas. And so to have a look at the Hebrew text as we have seen how diligently the, the scribes kept these texts, we know that this word that we read today is the word of God. And what does the word settled mean? It comes from the Hebrew word natsab, which means to stand, take one stand, to stand upright, to be erect, to set over, to establish, to be stationed, or be appointed. There's no if, buts, or maybe, or when. It is done. The word generations, when it says here, is unto all generations. Now, in the Hebrew, a generation, the Hebrew mindset applies time and seasons and periods differently to the way we apply them, having been taught in the Greek model and the Roman model. And... As I've discussed, the generation, if you look at the genealogies in the Word of God, and they talk about the genealogies from the Father and the generations, and they list the generations in many of the Old Testament books, and obviously Jesus' generations are also listed. But a generation in the Hebrew applies to a revolution of time. That is an age of a generation. It also applies to a dwelling an age, and an evermore generation, forever, posterity. What it also applies to is it, says it means to gyrate or to move in a circle. That is to remain or to dwell. And this word generation, and amongst us here we have a number of different generations. Grandparents, fathers, sons and daughters. But we also, if we remember the scripture when Jesus says that not one shall pass from this generation until I come. And that's a scripture that I never understood completely. Because how could those people who were, were alive at the time of Jesus not die? And if we understand it from the Hebrew mindset... The generation refers to a revolution of time. And it's not a specific period of years, because if you look at the, in, before the flood, people lived a lot longer. After the flood, people lived at, at different periods. So God is not referring to what we determine now, a generation, as a, as a calendar year. It's about your offspring and your seed. So when, when Jesus is referring to that, he's referring to that, he was the last Adam, but he was the firstborn of the man from heaven. We are Jesus' generation. And this is the, the principle that Jesus is referring to. And established, what does it mean? 
It means to be set up, to be firmly established, to be established, to be stable, be secure, be enduring, and to be fixed and securely determined. And as I showed last week, a God who has to prove his existence is an idol. God has settled his word. And many people want to dispute the accuracy of God's word. Many people want to dispute which version or what version. God's word is his word. All he needs is one word to bring someone to salvation. There's a story I'll never forget in, in, in communist Russia. In a small town in Siberia, they had revival with just one page from the Bible. Just one page is all it took. Because every single word is a seed. So his word is settled. And the ordinances, what does that mean? It means a verdict, a sentence, or a formal decree. It's divine law. It's time and execution of judgment and a plan and an act of deciding a case. Just like a judge has to weigh the verdict and weigh the option. It has been weighed already. It has been established. And this is what this verse is talking about. And the faithfulness is about security and stability. It's not man's faith. This is God's faithfulness. This is one of the most incredible pictures in the light. I hope we can see it as well. But this is a 3D image of the Milky Way. It's absolutely incredible. And in the three-dimensional image of the Milky Way, we see a golden bow or bow through the Milky Way. And this is obviously taken from a, a telescopic site. I think this, this particular image was, was taken from, uh, it wasn't Sutherland, but I think it was in, in South America. But this is a three-dimensional image and clearly seen all those little lights, each one of them represents a different galaxy and the arch of heaven. And this is really what it is. God created the arch. And in Psalm 147 verse 4, he says, He appoints the number of the stars. He calls them all by their names. When he says appoints, he says he weighs out, he enumerates, he assigns. And the number is to reckon or to count. And when he calls out to them by their names, it's the mark of individuality, the honor, the character, and authority. Not only the stars in the heavens, but as we saw, that we are his stars on this earth. We are the lights of the world, and the Greek word that is used is the same as what is used as a star. We are to be the illuminators in this world, to bring the light. And this is why a name is so important, because it defines your honor, your character, and your authority. And when we address God, we address Him by His name and names and characters and attributes thereof. It was like the high priest had 
the pomegranates and the, the bells sewed to the hem of his garment, which represented his authority. It was like the woman of issue when she grabbed hold of the hem of Jesus' garment. She was grabbing hold of his authority. And this is the same principle that applies here. That all of the stars are named and he's called them. And just like every single one of us, he has given us each individual personalities, individual talents, individual characteristics. And he's given us a character and authority. Besides me, there is no God. You know, Isaiah was a prophet. God showed it all to him. You know, he and Ezekiel have a very clear description of the throne room of God. He showed them the entire history and then he showed them the new heaven and the new Jerusalem. The book of Isaiah is actually incredible. There's 66 chapters in, in the book of Isaiah. There's 66 books in the Bible that we have today. And if you notice that the, that the book of Isaiah has a different... It's almost like in two parts. Because you, you have the last 27 books having a different tone as the first. And representing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament and the New. And here in Isaiah 44 he says, This is what the Lord says. The King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of the heavenly armies, is His name. This is His title. I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me there is no God. This is exactly what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1. He says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it and lay it out for himself. Since he made an ancient people and let him speak of future events and let them tell him what will happen. Yes, God challenging men says, if you know what would happen before, tell us what's going on. Because I am here, I'm the first and the last, I laid it down. He says, do not be tremble and be afraid. Didn't I tell you and announce it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? And there is no other rock. I do not know of any. If we look at our solar system. It shows the planets and, and what are called the dwarf planets. But our solar system is approximately 13 billion light years. Approximately to the furthest dwarf planet in our particular solar system. And the ratio and the space. And, and you know, if the earth was even just one or two degree closer or further from the sun, life would not exist on this planet as it is today. There was no accident. God set this in motion when he created before the foundation of the world. And so we have... and. In the later studies, we'll get into more of the planetary influences in other cultures. But, you know, you have Mercury, Venus, Earth is the third planet. We have Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And they now put Pluto as, as a dwarf planet. Uh, I'm sure when we were at school, that's what I was taught, Pluto was one of the planets. But there are eight planets in our solar system. And, and uh, obviously a light year is, is, this, is the distance at which the speed 
uh, that uh, light would travel in a calendar year. And they've set the calendar year as 365 days and a quarter under the Gregorian calendar. God declares his purpose. In Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, he says, Remember the former, thing, former things from long ago, because I am God, and there is no one else. I am God, and there is none like me. I declare from the beginning things to follow, and from ancient times things that have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will stand, and he will accomplish everything that I please. Our God has written history before it happens. And it's all in the word of God. To understand his time and his season. In Isaiah 48, he goes and says, I have foretold the former things long ago, and it went forth from my mouth and I disclosed them and suddenly I acted and they came to pass as we have learned that God spoke creation into existence he spoke us into existence and if we are on earth today we look at the seasons and how are they determined and the seasons you know the earth revolves around the sun and the sunlight hits different parts of the earth, causing yearly changes in climate called seasons, which is what we call. And so we'll have the four seasons in one year. So the time that the earth circles around the sun, um, we will have the different seasons in there. So spring, winter, summer, autumn. And I'll get into the details of that now. But God announces history before it happens. In Isaiah again, it says, I told you the things of long ago, and I've told you them before they happened, so that you couldn't say, my idol did them, my carved image or metal idol ordained them. He says, you have heard, and now look at them, or oh, how can you not admit them? From now on, I'll make you hear new things and hidden things that you have not known. They are created now. And not long ago you didn't hear them before today. So you cannot say, I knew them. And I'm using the ISV version here. Because the ISV, interestingly enough, was translated from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which were discovered in the Qumran Caves. And the authenticity of those manuscripts proved the original authenticity of the, the other manuscripts that they had. So people who dispute the authenticity of God's word don't know God. And this is what God is saying here. He says, your idols will not tell you this. I'm not fortune telling. I'm not divining the future. But I'm laying it out before you and that you have no excuse because it's here in my word. And this is what he's saying here. He says that you cannot say that I knew what was going to happen. God tells us before. And Isaiah 48, he says, listen to these things. Jacob and Israel, whom I have called, I am the one. 
I am the first, I am even the last. And moreover, my hands laid the earth's foundation, and my right hand spread out the heavens, and I call out to them, and they stand up together. Let all of them come together and listen. Who is there among them that could declare these things? The Lord loves me, and he will accomplish my purpose against Babylon. Everything is set in its order and in its place from the beginning of creation. And we're going to look at a bit of the scientific side of it now. Because if we look at the way the earth goes around the sun and the different seasons. And I mentioned last week about precession. It's about the earth's orbit around the sun, but the earth is tilted at an angle. So you've heard of the magnetic north pole and the true north pole on different compasses. And that basically the earth is at a 23.45 degree angle tilt from the, or from the vertical 90 degree. So, and the ecliptic so we have the sun, the ecliptic is the orbit of the earth around the sun. And then we have what was called the celestial equator. So if we had to tilt the earth upright, we take where the equator is, which is the line that divides the earth from northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere. That is what's called the celestial equator. So as it is going in orbit, it's going at a slant. And at, at certain points, and the points where the celestial, which is the equator and the ecliptic meet, those are where the equinoxes happen on the earth. So either the spring equinox or the autumnal or fall equinox. Or it can also be called the vernal equinox. So vernal or spring which obviously northern and summer hemisphere varies, or we have the autumn or fall equinoxes. And that's the point at which those two orbits intersect. Okay? And so we have, and basically, yeah, so you have your two equinoxes and then you have your two solstices. And obviously the degree at which those are separate is 23.45 degrees. Just to give this in more perspective, the four seasons are determined by the ecliptical and solar orbits. So for example in March, the March equinox, which in is the spring equinox. So in the northern hemisphere, but it's our autumn or fall equinox in the southern hemisphere. And you'll see that the sun lines up equally between the, the day and the night. So there are exactly 12 hours in the day and 12 hours in the night. And then the June solstice, um, which is the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere, which is where the sun, its rising point is on the Tropic of Cancer. And then we have the September equinox, so as the Earth is turned again, which will be 
you know, the, the autumn and, and spring equinox, and then the December solstice, which is where the sun is directly over the Tropic of Capricorn. So you have the Tropic of Cancer, trop- Equator, and the Tropic of Capricorn. And those are the three delineating areas. And obviously, depending on where you are in the earth, that will be the season. And this is how the, dece- the seasons are determined. And it's not necessarily about, it's about the position of the earth's orbit in relation to the position of the orbit of the sun. It's not necessarily the closeness to the sun. So as we can see here, the ecliptic and the equatorial plane. So what you can see, the earth's orbit is not actually equidistant around the sun. That there's a point at which it is at its furthest point away from the sun, and there's a point at which it's the closest towards the sun. And um, we can see here the summer solstice, uh, and this is referring to Northern Hemisphere, which is the 21st of June, uh, around about there, happens actually when it's most furthest from the sun, almost. And that the spring equinox happens when it's almost at its closest point. And the winter solstice, which is in December, or our summer solstice, happens also at a close point in, the, in orbit to the sun. And that's often a misconception people have that the earth is going around in a perfect circle and it's equidistant from the sun, and it's not. And, and the second image will just show the tilting of the earth and the way the ray of the sun's, uh, sun's hit. Um, this this I- detailed image on the left gives us a bit more if you can t- see the two spirals. So you'll have, if the earth was at 90 degrees, that is the orbital direction, or so that is, that is the, the, plane of, the plane of the, the so as, as the earth stands on its tilt, on its axis, and as I said, that's a 23.5 degree ratio, I'm assuming angle, and um, that is what's called the plane of the ecliptic. So the, the ecliptic as it goes around. And um, in the later series we'll get into what is a solar eclipse and what is a lunar eclipse. But this is just understanding what an ecliptic is. It's the circle or the cycle of the Earth's orbit around the sun and, and the, the angle at which it orbits. And, um, and obviously we know that the true north is not the same as a magnetic north. And that the celestial north is different. And we'll look at where the North Star is, because obviously the North Star has changed over the period of history because of this wobble that the Earth has when it rotates. So over time, there's a wobble. And this is, this is the reason thereof, because the Earth is actually wobbling as it's going on its, its axis. It's spinning like a top. So if you take like a children's top and you spin it, it starts spinning at, at an angle doesn't spin at 90 degrees. So ancient methods of measuring seasons of time have varied. And I'm just going to touch on this subject. But, you know, men have built ancient monuments like Stonehenge and the pyramids as almost like clocks and calendars. I mean, you find that the pyramids are built at precisely 
to certain ratios and to certain formulas and that the direction of the sides of the pyramid are exactly, you know, even with modern instrumentation, to the cardinal points, north, east, south, and west. And that the, the alignment of the pyramids line up precisely with Orion's belt. You know, and that Stonehenge, you know, that at a particular time of year, at the summer solstice, the sun rises at a particular point in Stonehenge. And these were ancient, ancient, monolithic, I mean, these are massive, massive stones and massive monuments with a lot of, would still confuse a lot of people how they were actually built. And, I mean, we were talking about 40-ton stones that were just lifted in the air. There wasn't any modern machinery in those days to have been able to have done that. And so, so men have used these to determine the different seasons of time. And I have a picture of what's called an astronomical clock, um, a sundial, and the Mayan calendar. And these are just many different cultures have different ways of, 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 of measuring time and seasons, and seasons of time. And a lot of these were agricultural-based calendars. In the next episode, we'll get into the different type of calendars and how we got our calendars today, but I'm just highlighting that the calendars were based on the orbit of the Earth and of, of the planets and the sun. And so they were either based, they were astrological calendars as well, so they were based either on lunar or solar orbits, or a combination thereof. So a lot of the ancient cultures, by ob ob observation of the stars and the changes of the seasons and the day and the night, began to come up with met methods of measuring time. And this was necessary for, for planning, uh, religious festivals, societal rules, uh, the farming periods, and the sacred feasts that they had. And a lot of the, the old um, Hebrew, a lot of the old pagan, a lot of the old cultural festivals all had to do with the time of year and had to do with the sowing season and the harvest season. So this is why spring and fall were, were very important in their particular viewpoint, you know, because they knew when to sow and when to harvest, because it would be, you know, they would be leading into, so that they watched the stars, this is what I'm saying. And, and so if, if you're man on, 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 on earth, and you're looking at man's point of view, you know, what are you going to see? The stars. So everything, every calendar, and every clock or every season that man has determined is based on his point of view here on earth. And this is the point I'm highlighting here, is that we need to start looking at from God's point of view. How does he view time and seasons? And so man, since the beginning and the dawn of mankind, has monitored when the sun has come up in the east, when it has ascended, and where the sun has gone down in the west, and it has descended. And then the high point of the sun, which is called the meridian, or the zenith, or the height, and 
the base point of the sun, which is called the Nadia. And the precession um, of that sun and, and, and the point at which the sun was coming, whether it was true east or just slightly off east, it would change because obviously as the earth was orbiting. So their calendars were based on these things. So they knew if it was winter solstice, then it would be at this particular angle. And so their astronomers, so astronomers and uh, astrologers played a very important part in ancient cultures. And if you look at the astrologers of the Egyptian courts and the pharaohs of, of, of Moses, and if we look at the astrologers and the magicians in the courts of, of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, look at all of these, they always, these learned men who, who could read the signs and the stars were held in high esteem. So, this, the seasons, the solstice is basically when you have the longest day or the longest night. And so if it's a summer solstice, it's, it, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's, it's over the Tropic of Cancer. And you'll find that in the North Pole, there will be 24 hours of sunlight. And in the South Pole, there will be no sunlight. It will be permanently dark. And the inverse, the opposite, when it's the winter solstice, the Arctic Circle will experience complete darkness. We'll have no sunlight. <laughs> and uh, interesting story. I mean, this is actually a lot of people go crazy during this period when they don't see the sun. And if you look at a lot of these cultures, I mean, I remember as a young man, uh, when I was backpacking through Europe, I would meet uh, some of the Scandinavians and guys who would come from far up north in Finland or Norway. And... Um, you know, the countries used to ban the sale of alcohol during those winter months because people would just get depressed. They wouldn't see the sun. Yeah? And uh, living in those cold conditions, yeah, it definitely drives people a bit crazy. And even if you look at places like Alaska, where you have months where you cannot go outside. And this is all because of the tilt of the Earth's orbit. So, and you'll see that uh, on the equator at that time, so, so basically if it's a, a summer solstice at the Tropic of Cancer, you'll have 13 and a half hours of sunlight. The equator, you'll have 12 hours of, of daylight. And in the Tropic of Cancer, we'll have 10 and a half hours of daylight. Because this has always been a question. Is we have a clock of 24 hours or a clock of 12 hours, but... Why is 12 p.m.? 12 p.m. is not necessarily the hottest time of the day. And midnight is not necessarily the, the middle of the night, is it? So, just think about that. So, basically, and then the equinox, which is when the sun is over the equator, and the word equinox means equality of night. That's where the word comes from. And so when the earth is now... Exactly, and the sun is over the equator, and there's an equal day and equal night. And at this time of year is when, in March and September, is when you will have equal parts day and equal parts night across there. What does the Bible say about this? The Ancient of Days inhabits the circle of the earth. In Isaiah, once again, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Had it not been told to you from the beginning, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. That's God's view. So, we look at man's way as a grasshopper standing looking at the stars trying to measure the time, whereas we serve the God who formed the foundation of the world and sits upon the circle of the earth. And it's no accident that the Holy Spirit chose this word. In, 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 in every single word in the, in the Bible is the breath of God. And so he stretched out the heavens like a curtain. And we deal in, in, in our previous series about that he can yet roll the heavens up like a scroll. This is the God we serve. And he spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. It is his dwelling place. The heavens declare the glory of the God of, of our Lord. And, and Isaiah again, he says, Since ancient times no one has heard, nor ear has perceived, nor eyes has seen any God beside you. And this is the kicker, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Every other religion, every other belief system is about man drawing closer to God or becoming like a God. We serve the God who reaches out to us. Completely different. Our God is knowable. The God of Islam is unknowable. Allah is unknowable. You, you, you do not know in what mood you will find Him. Do not approach Him. He is unapproachable. You can attest this. Because He might destroy you if you approach Him. Our God is a God of love. And He acts on our behalf. Everything that is set, everything that happens is through the filter of God's will and God's plan for each of our lives. Everything that happens is Father filtered in our lives. All the trials that happen, all the blessings that occur, all come through the filter of our Heavenly Father. And he says, you come to the O, sorry, you come to the aid of those who gladly do what is right. We serve a God who comes to our assistance. He comes to help us. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. This is, this is completely different. This is a God of love. And, and to those who remember you in your ways, for those who keep God's commandments, for those who remember Him. And He says, See, you were angry, and we have sinned against them for a long time. He says, We anger God when we sin against Him. But this is the promise of hope. He says, but we will be saved. We serve a loving and gracious God. So as I said, on the one hand, as we've discussed, we are under the law and the grace of God. 
The law has been established. This is what is settled. This is the divine law that is established in all the heavens and all of creation around us. But the grace of God is the love and the mercy that is shown to those who seek Him and search Him. And this is a God who is knowable. This is a God who, He is a God who is searchable. He is a God who pays attention in our lives. And He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. This is His promises for all eternity. We look at the lunar cycle and the orbit around the earth, how the moon goes. And we go from, and this actually works um, from. It's from left, because obviously we start at the new moon being the beginning of the lunar month. So the waxing is as the moon, the moon gets bigger, and the waning as the moon gets smaller. So it comes in an inverse circle. So as we get the moon, we get the first crescent, then the first quarter, we get waxing, and then to full moon, and then it starts waning and gets getting smaller to the third quarter. Uh, and to the waning crescent. And many ancient cultures have looked at the cycle of the seasons and the moon. And today still, we look at these. In, it comes from the Greek word, which is kuklos, which means cycle or circle. So a cycle means circle. And the bio if we look at the biological cycle of animals, this is also determined by the moon and by the orbit of the sun and the seasons. We look at some animals are only nocturnal. Some of them are, are diurnal. I should have put a dash in there, but diurnal. Some of them are only in the day. And then we look at the migration of animals during the seasons. So, if, you know, we... we we have birds that fly thousands of miles to follow the summer. But they know when the seasons are changing. And they know and they have their own GPS in them that they can follow. And they've discovered through the magnetic fields in the earth, they are able to direct and migrate. You look at the whales that come to our coastline every year. They come here to breed. How do they know when to move? How do they know when to come and to breed? In, in the warmer shores of, you know, of the southern tip of Africa. And the rest of the year they go to their feeding fields more further south. And so we also look at the hibernation of animals during the seasons. Like you look at bears and, and they know when it's hibernation time. And so you'll find them in Alaska, those bears will eat that salmon until they're fat. And then they know for that period when they hibernate, they literally, their whole body rhythm, everything slows down and they live off the fat that they've stored up for that period to hibernate. I mean, who tells them when to hibernate? We look at the lunar cycle. And it's approximately 29 days. Yeah, approximately. I don't want to get into fractional side, but just say 29 days is a full lunar cycle from new moon to new moon, or full moon to full moon, whichever way you're looking at it. And 
You look at how the moon impacts the tides. It impacts the high tides, the low tides, the spring tides. And just like eclipses and all of these, they, the, the tides change. The high tide and the low tide come at different times. And sometimes it's, you know, extreme changes between the height and the depth of the, of the tide. And then we look at planting and gardening and farming by the cycle of the moon. Is that, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but when the moon is waning, it's growing, there's vegetative growth. Everything above the ground is growing. And when the moon is getting smaller, everything that is below the ground, the root structure, is growing. Isn't that incredible? Just by the moon. And this is God's planting cycle. And another thing is a woman's menstrual cycle in the days of old was determined by the cycle of the moon. Before there was light pollution, before there were any of these things like modern electronics and whatever, the ancient cycles is that the woman's cycle would be based on the phase of the moon. This is a fact. Yes, of course. So was that then was that then changed because of all the technology and everything? No, you see, if you look at um, it's not changed because of the technology. There, there, there are a number of things which which impact a woman's cycle. Okay, and as a man, I don't think we'll ever understand. I think a woman needs to come and stand here and, and speak about that one, but. The fact is that, um, you know, when there wasn't all of these medications and pills and, you know, electricity and light, I mean, because we get a lot of light pollution, because like, you know, in, in the days of old, when it was dark, it was dark, mm. you know, and for those of us who are fortunate to still live in the hills, we don't get much light pollution either, because our neighbors are not very close to us. But in the city, you're surrounded by the lights. So that has an impact. And it's actually determined as well. And, and, it, 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 and there's a belief that the full moon can excite and disturb human behavior. It is deeply rooted in culture and language and clinical law. And they've actually now done scientific studies on people with bipolar disorder. That the cycle of the moon affects people's mood. Whether it be ADHD or any kind of mood disorder is affected by the cycle of the moon. Just like the hormonal cycles are affected by the moon. And so hence this was a very important period for people to understand. So in, 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 in the ancient, and this is now a picture of the time when the sun rises at Stonehenge, and the ancient druids and the cults used to, the Celts, sorry, used to then come and have a big festival at that time, because they knew that that was the big, that time of their calendar. And so the agricultural seasons for them determined what what when to plant and to harvest. And the solstice, 
the word actually comes from the Latin, which means soul, which means son, and sisteri, which means come to a stop or stand still. So that's what the word actually means. And it's a significant turning point in the year because the days start getting shorter and the nights start getting longer. If you look at the June solstice, and it's associated with change and change in nature, and it's associated with new beginnings because it's now turning into, because uh, as the days are getting shorter, that's when the harvest starts to ripen, and they come into the harvest season. So the height of that, so you have your spring equinox, which now is time to plant. Your summer solstice is the height or the heat of days, and then it would then go into your autumnal equinox, which is obviously when the leaves start falling off the trees, and by then you would have had your harvest. So it represents a, a point in change of, of the seasons. And people around the world would celebrate this day, which is also known as the summer solstice in the northern hemisphere and the winter solstice in the southern hemisphere. And there would be feasts and bonfires and picnics and traditional songs and dances. But basically every single culture to this day still celebrates on these days. And we'll get into some of the festivals which we celebrate today. And we need to realize why and, and where it all started. So celebrations surrounding the June solstice. You know, it's a time-honored history, and in ancient times, the date of the June solstice was used to organize calendars as a marker to figure out when to plant and when to harvest crops. How fortunate we are to have a God who never sleeps or never grows weary. So the seasons come, the times pass, but God is always faithful and always here. In Isaiah 40, he says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is he weary, and there is no searching of his understanding. And that means there's no end to his understanding. It's not that we can't, he wants us to search him, but there's no end to his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. And even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. And this is probably many of our favorite verses. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. And this, eh? yeah, there it is. It's on the wall. It's actually, I've got it on my Bible as well. But this is a promise from God. And so, you know, the eagle, I've mentioned this before. He's a solitary bird. And he mates for life. Yeah? But most of the time he's a solitary bird. And the eagle, he doesn't fly through the storm. He can see that storm coming miles away. And he flies above the storm. Because they can see a very long distance. And this is what the 
God does. He gives us what we need to know and to, to prepare us for what's coming ahead. He doesn't leave us unaware. And this is the point, according to his time. So what does waiting on the Lord mean? What does the word wait mean? Is this a passive exercise? In, in, I mean, to, to wait on the Lord. You know, in, in our English language, you know, if I'm waiting for somebody, you know, um, yeah, either someone's late for an appointment, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for them. What am I doing? I'm being passive about it. But in, in the Hebrew, it's different. That's correct. Is No, it's not the same as the covering of God. It's it's um, similar kavar, and I will get into the covering. Um, but this is the kavar is 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 about to wait, to look for, to hope, or to expect in anticipation. That is more what it's referring to. Uh, the covering is generally like under the shadow of his wing. You waited. That word is used for that kind of covering. That's a protection covering. This is an earnest expectation, an anticipation, a hoping for. It's an active verb, if you know what I'm saying. It's not a passive. So to wait on God is not a passive thing. And, and, and David gives light into this. What does waiting mean? And these, this is the same word that is used in the book of Psalms when David talks. And, and this, this, this psalm is titled, Teach Me Your Paths. He says, I will lift up my soul to you, Lord. I will trust in you, my God, and do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, no one who waits... On you will be ashamed. But those who offend for no reason will be put to shame. Cause, cause me to understand your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God who delivers me. All day long I have waited for you. This is the waiting. That is being referred to by Isaiah. Is seeking God. Being taught by him. Guiding us. Through his word and his truth. This is the waiting on the Lord. And remember O Lord your tender mercies. And your guidance. Oh sorry your gracious love. And indeed they are eternal. Forever. And Solomon says here in the book of Lamentations, is trust and search God alone. This is the same word that is used here. Because you can, there are always two or three witnesses in Scripture. So if you want to understand the impact of a particular word or what the meaning is, go and look at what it says about that word. And it says, and this is so beautiful, they are new every morning. We have that hymn. That we sing. New every morning, 
Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. It comes from this, this, this chapter. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is all I have, says my soul. Therefore I will trust in Him. And the Lord is good to those who wait for Him. In the, to the person who searches for Him. It's a searching out. It's a willingness to trust. It's a willingness to be to surrender. And it said it is good to hope and wait patiently for the Lord's salvation. This is the process of waiting. And in the process of waiting, we receive courage and strength. And this is confirmed by David once again. Wait on the Lord, be courageous, and He will strengthen your heart. Wait upon the Lord. It's about gaining strength. And this is what it is referring to. And as a believer, do we believe anything and everything? You know, what am I to believe is true? If we look at, you know, I've discussed this, which version of the Bible or or what we see on the news, or, you know, where do we get our version of truth from, is basically what the question is. Because many people, we live in, a, in an age of relativism, where truth is relative. My truth is relative to your truth, and your truth is relative to my truth. And the problem is with that, is that opinion sneaks in along the way. And when opinion sneaks in along the way, it changes the truth. Because I look at the gray hairs, no offense, at the back of the room, and the gray hairs, their generation and my generation, were taught different truths. The time and the culture, the cultures changed. The laws of the society were different when you were my age. Laws of men are always changing. Truths of men are always changing. So, who does God speak to? And does He speak to me? Do we know what God wants because He speaks to us? What does God reveal to us? Can His word be changed? And this is the question. It's not for us to change His word and cherry pick, to use the phrase, the verse that is convenient to us, or a verse that is not convenient to us. It's about taking the whole counsel of God. The Word of God is either obsolete or it's absolute. It's not in between. There's no middle of the road. It's 100% truth or it's not truth. God is, it is impossible for God to lie. We know this. And we don't need to prove this. As I said, if we have to prove it, then he's not God. He's an idol. So can his word be changed? And the answer is no. It's forever settled. And is God's identity being stolen? And I've talked about this before, about how taking the name of the Lord in vain, one of the commandments, is about our ambassadorship and stewardship as a Christian. It's about the representatives of Christ on this earth to others. It's not about a swear word. 
It's about who we reflect, who we represent. And do we say it's God, but it's actually not God? This, this is the point here. The only way that we know God is by searching Him and by seeking His truth. And He draws near to us. And His Word says one thing, and yet we are focused on other things. You know, for those... I mean, Psalm 1 verse 1, David nails it. He says, for, for, for he who delights in the law... I delight in the law of the, of, of the Lord... I meditate it on day and night. I am like a tree planted by the river where my leaves never fall. They never wilt. They never, they never change. He becomes established as he meditates on the word. And how do we learn and how do we grow as a believer? And who is the teacher? Jesus is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit that searches the deep things of God. And He is the one that gives us the spiritual discernment to understand spiritual matters. To understand carnal matters is one thing. But to understand spiritual matters and to weigh them out according to God is the only way is through Jesus. And who is the Master and are we His servants? I mean, the Bible says many things about this, this illusion through the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, that no servant is greater than his master. And that God has also said, as we saw in Isaiah, for all are his servants. And the other thing the Bible says, man cannot worship two masters. You only have one master. God is either all or he is not at all. And whose authority do we observe? And do we walk in su as such in this authority? And what are his rights and what are my rights? Understanding that we are purchased possession. That Jesus has paid the price in full for our souls. We have lost all of our individual rights. But we belong to Jesus who is our coming King and He is the Lord of our heavenly armies and we need to operate as such. It's about changing our point of view. Not standing on the earth and looking up but rather God came down from heaven to reconcile us back to God. Understanding His view, understanding His time and this, this is a clear, incredible scripture about how not to be deceived. There are so many traps and so many snares, so many pitfalls, so many stumbling blocks awaiting a believer around every single corner. And Paul lays it down in Ephesians 5. This is how we do not be deceived. He says... Do not let anyone deceive you with meaningless words. For it, is, for it is because of these things that God becomes angry with those who disobey. So do not be partners with them. 
For once you went for, for once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit that the light produces consists of every form of goodness, righteousness and truth. And determine what pleases the Lord. What pleases you, God? What brings the light into your heart? And have nothing to do with the unfruitful actions that darkness produces. Instead, expose them for what they are. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by those disobedient people in secret. The Holy Spirit is not messing around here. You know, there's no mingling. There's a separation. There's darkness and there's light. You do not live in both. God has brought you out of the darkness into the light. And this is where we remain. And he says, but everything that is exposed to the light becomes visible. For the light is making everything visible. That is why it says, wake up, sleeper, arise from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. So then be careful how you live. Behavior matters to God. Do not be unwise, but wise. Making the best of your time, because the times are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. As I said, the ISV was taken from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is a more understandable English version of the Bible and it is very precise it's under no illusions you're either light or you're in darkness and how do we find out we need to understand searching God what pleases him how do we know what God's will is for our life for our families for our community for our fellowship for our nations for this world that we live in. It's through these principles that are laid down here to the Ephesian church. And it's, it's, this is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is what the Bible says, fear God, not man. Psalm 111 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A, a good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. And the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Without the fear of the Lord, there cannot be godly wisdom. And this is what Paul is alluding to when he says, Do not be unwise, but be wise. Search the Lord. Seek His will. Find out what His plan and purpose is. And it starts with this. And in Proverbs 14, it says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and His children shall have a place of refuge. This is the covering you're talking about. This is the refuge. The covering. Of God 
And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. And this godly fear, Yir'ah, is the word, it's about awe and terrifying fear of God. It's about respect, reverence, and the old English word is piety, but holiness of God. We serve a holy God. If we do not preach or practice holiness, and we do not abide to God's principles, it's not my principles, it's His word, not mine. And this is something that, if we are in pursuit of wisdom, if we are in pursuit of God, it starts with the awe of God, about who He is. Not who we think He is, or not what He does for us, but what He already has set from the beginning to the end. And I love this. A man who is intimate with God cannot be intimidated by man. Do not fear. The closer you are to God, the stronger you are in this world. And the stronger you are, you shall not fear what men shall do to you. And this is what Jesus says. He says this to us so clearly. He says, have no fear of men. In the book of Matthew, he says, so never be afraid of them. Because there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And nothing secret that will not be made known. What I tell you in darkness, you must speak in the daylight. And what is whispered in your ear, you must shout from the housetops. Stop being afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Two sparrows are sold for a penny, aren't they? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's permission. Indeed, even the hairs on, the, on your head have all been counted. So stop being afraid. You are worth much more than a bunch of sparrows. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before people, I too will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I too will deny before my Father in heaven. Sobering words. We, do, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but we've been given a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of unconditional love. The word agape actually means a love feast. It's a love. God wants to have a love feast with us, and it doesn't come with conditions. So it's time to, to quit playing and start praying. Quit feasting and start fasting. Talk less with men. Talk more to God. Listen less to men and listen to the words of God. Skip travel and start travail. This is written by a man, Leonard Ravenhill. An incredible man who lived in prayer. We talk about being in the army of God. 
This is the battlefield, the prayer room, the prayer closet. And it's not only the corporate, but individual private prayer with God. The supernatural warfare, because what does it say after we put on the armor? With all prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And that all these strongholds will come down. And all of this is about getting to know and understand who God is. And having the right point of view. Not only of who we are in Christ, but who He is. And God wins. We must never forget, God wins. So thank you Lord. We take your glory. Now let's give God some glory. Let's give Him honor and praise for who He is. Dear Lord, thank you that you have overcome. Thank you that in you we can take our shelter. That in you we have the victory that you have already attained. I ask Lord that you will consolidate these things that your scripture has revealed to us and what Craig has been a vehicle to transmit. We ask Lord that you will consolidate them in our thinking. That we will talk more to you and less to men. That we will indeed travel less and prevail more in our searching for you. And in our searching for your ways and in walking in those ways. We ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that you guide us to find you, Lord. We are not just left in the dark. You give us the roadmap. You give us the book. You give us directions to find you. It's just those who don't want to seek you that will not find you. But we seek you, Lord, with all of our hearts and our minds and all of what we are. We seek you, Lord, and we thank you and we bless you that you have given us direction and that you have these wonderful things for us to find all these treasures that we find as we search you, Lord. It's not just a boring, long search of walking in a desert without anything to feed us or to nourish us or to excite you. Excite us, Lord. You excite us with everything that we find on the way to the completeness in you, Lord, through Jesus Christ. You have opened up a way for us to go to you and to be the light in this world and to show others to, to be light in this world so that your treasures can can be found and shown. And we bless you, Lord. We thank you. What a blessing it is to be a light in this world that can shine for you. We love you, Lord. And we are in awe of you, Lord, for everything that you show us. We thank you, Lord, for praying that is shown some of what we have all to discover in the future of his teachings, Lord. We ask you to bless him in this. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. grateful and thankful hearts, my God, that we could be present here today, we could hear and take in who you are. And we just want to give you all the glory, all the honor, all the praise, and all the adoration for the whole earth.
groans of shadow. You are all that we need. And we thank you for all that you've done. Lord, I pray that you will bless us with the courage to spread your word. For Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by you. Lord, give us a prayer life like never before. Yes, Lord. A prayer life that will tear down strongholds in the name of Jesus Christ. That will demolish every argument, every pretension, and every imagination that exalts itself against the Lord and that will take every thought captive and bring it into obedience Lord, here we are today to renew our commitment to love you with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our souls, and with all of our might, and to love our neighbors, as we love ourselves, that we will spread the good news, the glad tidings, the gospel of peace, that we will stand firmly rooted and grounded on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our Master and our King. That we will work for the extension of your kingdom where you are king. And that the world will grow strangely dumb to us, Lord Jesus. Because we are not part of this world. But that we will minister boldly because of your agape love for us. And that love, I pray, will urge us, Lord, and propel us to stand on the truth, to stand for the truth, and to reach out because of the desire that you have for us. So that all of us may dwell with you and live in peace with one another. Yes, we love you because you first loved us. Yes, and we surrender our lives to you because you gave up your life that we may have life and have life in abundance. You are in control of everything. Yes, and we trust you because you are trustworthy. Wash us with your word. For your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our hearts. And your name is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. Bless the work of Hands for the extension of your kingdom. Come and anoint us with the power 
bring the good news, spread the gospel of peace. In Jesus' mighty name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Lord, there is none like you. Not in the heaven, on the earth, under the earth, in the waters under the earth. My finite brain, the more I hear your word, the more I realize how privileged you are before you are Father. This great, deep, wonderful God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Jesus, that when you left, you said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for opening your word to our hearts to help us to understand a little bit better of who you really are. And I pray, Lord, that you'll not only establish your word in heaven, but here in our hearts as well. Lord, thank you for Craig as well. Thank you for the hours that he spent preparing in prayer, praying, preparing. And I pray, Lord, that you'll even open your word to his heart even more and more, using not only here in this fellowship, but a wider field as well. Open more doors for him, so he may share the glories of our God. So we praise you, we thank you, and we bless you. For all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Lord, I just want to say, Lord, thank you, Lord, the last time we gathered here. Um, I said a prayer for Dean and Matilda that they would uh, arrive safely in wilderness. And I thank you, Lord, for the answer of another prayer that they would join us here. And here they are. We thank you and bless you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Heavenly Father. What a privilege it is to be called your sons and your daughters, Lord. The great lengths that you have gone to reconcile and to form a people, Lord. Lord, if we look at your word and how much time is spent on your creation compared to the amount of time that is spent in your redemption and salvation, Lord. But yet your creation was settled. Your divine law was established. And there are really just a few chapters in the beginning of Genesis and a couple of chapters and a couple of verses here and there. But this whole book, Lord, is all about your love and getting a people back to you. And been reconciled, Lord. We've been given this word. We've been blessed with your word, Lord. Lord, the early church didn't have this book we have today, Lord. Make it alive and exciting for us, Lord. To search the deep things that your Holy Spirit will teach us. In spirit and in truth. As we worship you. And give you glory and honor. For who you are. Give us a right perception of you, Lord, and how you view us and how you view your creation, Lord. 
Let us understand your times. Let us understand your seasons, Lord. And Lord, there are so many promises that we can hold on to. Lord, you are a never-ending well. That you are a never-ending source of wisdom, of understanding, of love, of truth that never changes. Lord, our lives have taken so many turns and so many twists. But Lord, in your mercy and your grace, you called us out of darkness. And you brought us into your infinite light. A light that can never be extinguished. It can never go out. You are the source of light. So blend us, Lord, into your perfect light. Blend our colors. Blend our hearts. Search us. Form us. Mold us, Lord. Let us spend the time in prayer with you. In discussion with you. Lord, laying our lives. Laying our desires. Laying our affections at your feet. And Lord, every single time you lift us up. Every single time you provide a way where we think there is no way. You always come through. You always deliver. You always answer prayer, Lord. We thank you, Father, that what is born in the prayer room, Lord, can be made manifest to, to your body, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for, for the tears and the anguish and the travail that you endured that night where you prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You prayed, blood, Lord. Your tears of blood were dripping for us. And you said, Lord, let this cup pass from me. I cannot bear it. And yet, Lord, you drank that cup for every single one of us. For all of our sins, past, present and future, Lord. Lord, it is all of us for all of you. There is no other way but to trust and obey. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you, Lord, that you win and that you've told us a story, the greatest love story from beginning to end. And let us take us, take us on a journey and adventure of a lifetime, or an eternal lifetime with you, Lord. We give you all the glory in Jesus' mighty name. I pray. Amen.